This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. There's a heavy rainfall warning in effect. The good news is, is that it's, it's, it's not coming down hard and all at once. It's sort of uh, being spaced out over a long period of time, which means it's sort of a medium uh, rain, uh, which doesn't, of course... Uh, do as much damage as when it all comes down at once. Do you want to take a look? Let's open up the uh, open up the sunroof. We'll take a look. See exactly what's going. on. Yeah, yeah I can feel. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my. Oh. Oh, close it up. Close it up. Close, close it up. That was close. Has anybody got a mop? All right. uh, Drive with care if you are out on the roads. Uh, There is certainly uh, uh, puddles and ponds and and all that sort of thing uh, hanging all over the place. So uh, be, be aware with that. All right. We clean the mess up. Let's go. Uh, speaking of the rain, it's uh, created, of course, the potential for flooding in some areas across the city. And, you know, the, the, the people at the city are asking you to keep your eyes out with, you know, what's going on in and around your house, sewer drains, that sort of thing. Because obviously what happens is the water rushes all the, the, the leaves and, and brush and so on and so forth and garbage that's been accumulating over the winter into uh, drain areas and, and such. And uh, that's what causes the flooding. So if you got one of those out in front of your house, just keep, a, keep an eye on that and uh, try to keep the water flowing as best everybody can. But what happens when all of a sudden uh, Mother Nature does take a turn and uh, turns right into your basement? Uh, Are you covered? Does an average policy cover all of this? Let's bring in Pete Karagiorgis. He's the Director in Consumer and Industry Relations for the Insurance Bureau of Canada, and he is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Good afternoon, Scott. I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, are you getting a lot of calls today? It's been a busy day. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So what is, is the average person covered for such flooding? What is the average policy uh, entail, and, and what does it cover in situations like this? Well, the, the standard home insurance policy likely doesn't have uh, sewer backup coverage or flood coverage on it. So you'd have to purchase that as an additional rider onto the policy. Most insurance companies do offer sewer backup coverage, and a lot of folks do have it because that's uh, that's been an issue for many years now, especially when we're seeing people finish their basements and, and devoting quite a bit of uh, time and money into fixing them up. So there is sewer backup coverage available. What's new is the flood coverage for overland flooding. It's uh, just within the last three, four years that insurance companies have really started to offer that coverage to homeowners. So at one time, these were two separate things, or are they? If you have one, do you have the other necessarily? It, It depends on the company. Some companies may package that together for you so that you have a overall flood endorsement that covers whether or not the water comes in your house through the sewer drain, or if it comes in because there's a li- river or stream that's overflowed and it's, it's flooding into your house that way over land. So there are companies that do offer that together, uh, but many still, you can purchase at least the sewer backup coverage on its own. So uh, obviously people should clarify with uh, their insurance people to see whether, whether they have one or the other or in fact need both. Exactly, exactly. It's always good to check with your insurance company, especially that time of year when the renewal comes in the mail. Uh, Sit down with your insurance representative, ask those questions, say, what am I covered for? And uh, ask any questions in terms of, do I need this? And so that is the time always to, to shop around and to see, because not every insurance company offers the same type of coverages. So if you're in an area where you say, look, it's important for me to have full flood coverage, whether it's sewer backup or overland flooding, and your company doesn't offer that, well, then that's the time to shop around. Uh, You bring up a good question. Who should get this? Uh, You said before it wasn't a big deal. Now it seems to be. Who who should be looking at this? any, any, Any homeowner should consider it. They need to look at their property and determine whether or not 
they're likely to suffer an event like a flood uh, or a sewer backup situation. Nowadays, you know, with the environment changing, uh, people used to say, well, I never had that issue. And now uh, things are changing and we're seeing people who have never had a sewer backup claim are having those claims because of the environment and the overloaded infrastructures uh, within our municipalities. So anyone may need that coverage. It's always best to look at your individual situation. Is, is your basement finished? If your basement's finished, then you'll likely want to at least purchase their backup coverage. Uh, you sort of touched on this. Why now? Why has this become an issue now? Are we getting more flood claims? Are you getting more flood claims than you have in the past? Well, you know, there's a saying that I've, I've coined, it's water is the new fire from insurance perspective. In the past, the home insurance policy predominantly covered fire damage. That was the big risk to homes. Now it's, it's a lot of water damage. Again, it's, it's water within inside the home, burst pipes and the like, and also uh, exterior water coming into the home. So this is uh, the reason the change, and of, of late the last five, six years or so, as an industry, we've seen the uh, the impact that these uh, uh, severe storms are having on communities uh, and resulting in increased claims uh, for homeowners to fix damage. How much could this add to the price of a policy if uh, you're adding uh, sewer or flood uh, damage? Uh, I, I don't know. I, you know. I don't sell it. It's always best to, to either go online and, and seek a quote or visit an agent or a broker and ask them. And, and it's a competitive market out there, so prices will vary by insurance companies. So I, I, I don't have an idea in terms of what even a ballpark might be for that type of coverage. Uh, is it important, uh, I, I guess, how would a homeowner know if he's prone to flooding or not, if it hasn't happened before? Well, again, that's, that, that's a critical question. You know, if, if you haven't had a situation where uh, you, you've had a sewer backup claim, um, you don't know. You, you just don't know. It, it's a question of, do you want to protect yourself in case it happens? And that's what insurance is for. Insurance is for those situations uh, that, you know, you're unexpected uh, to happen. So uh, if you are on a septic system, there's less likelihood that you'll have a sewer backup claim uh, versus if uh, you, you belong to a municipality that has the sewer lines uh, so it, it's possible anywhere, anytime, especially uh, in those communities that have uh, sewer lines. And, and we're seeing that, too, in terms of aging infrastructure and additional development in some places that are taxing uh, the underground infrastructure. And, and potentially, while folks may not have had a claim in the past, now with more intense storms coming, uh, more development in areas, uh, the likelihood is that that may change. Why is a septic system more vulnerable? Well, I'm not saying it's more vulnerable. I'm saying it's less vulnerable. Oh, it is less vulnerable. Yeah, because it's not connected to anything else. Your septic system is basically just hooked up to your property. So it's not like anything can back it up other than what's there. Uh, exactly. Other, typically, it's whatever goes in and making sure that homeowners clean out those systems. Uh, how, much, how much have these claims gone up over the last couple of years? Well, as an industry, we've seen that prior to 2009, uh, on average, annually, as an, we were facing about $100 million a year on an average year for damage as a result of these severe weather events. 2009, up until last year even, when we had Fort McMurray wildfires, which was uh, you know, the, the, the record-breaking year from the insurance industry's perspective in terms of damage because of, of natural disasters, that those fires almost resulted in $3.7 billion uh, in, in insured damages and growing. But the trend has been from $100 million a year before 2009 on average. Now we're seeing $400 million a year hmm. on average across Canada. So it's a four, four-fold increase. How come uh, one large event like a Fort Mac makes such an impact? Well, it's, uh, it's just a sheer scope and size. Fort Mac is uh, record-breaking from Canada's perspective. We've never seen a disaster like that to the extent where a whole town uh, was was evacuated and mm-hmm. 2,400 plus properties uh, were damaged or destroyed by wildfires. So there's a lot of properties that need to be rebuilt. Folks who are displaced for a month and and the, the interesting thing that sometimes people don't understand or appreciate is the various coverages you have with your policy. Yes, it does cover damage to your home, but it also covers additional living expenses. If you can't live in your home because of something like a fire 
uh, or extreme water damage, and you need to find alternative accommodation, that's also covered under your policy. So again, sit down with your insurance representative, understand what you're covered for, look at the coverages that you may need, see what's available, and match those with your policy to make sure that you are fully protected uh, and, and have what you need. Uh, what, what role, and again, you're not an insurance agent, so I really can't ask that question about deductibles. Uh, when you are buying or looking for a policy, give us some tips. What should we be, what, what, what should pique our interest? Well, you did mention deductibles and and deductibles is, is one of those issues. Uh, you need to balance that with how much you can afford in terms of having a deductible if something were to happen. Is $500 your comfort level? Is 1000 Is 2000 3000 or more? Um, because the higher your deductible is, uh, you can reduce your premiums that way. So that is one thing. Um, and, and not every insurance policy is the same. Uh, a particular agent or broker may sell different types of policies even from the same company. So you may have a basic policy which covers you for the standard sorts of events, fire, theft, um, maybe a burst pipe, and then you may want full coverage or full protection that covers you for everything from all those things to water damage to even perhaps electrical storms frying your TV or electronics and computers. So it really depends on what you want as part of that uh, uh, package and buying it appropriately. But there are many choices and options available. That's why it's always best to sit down and have that discussion. Uh, what's the advantages, disadvantages, and I'm not sure if you can comment on this, between having a broker and going to an insurance company? Well, it's a personal preference at times, too. The, the, the key difference there is uh, going to an insurance company directly online or through an agent is they just have one company that they write business for. A broker typically has many different companies, so a broker can do more shopping for you than, say, an agent can or the company can. So uh, typically the broker does uh, a little more of the legwork uh, than, than an agent. If you had an agent, you may have to do a little bit more of the shopping around. Pete Carrot-George has been with us, Director, Consumer and Industry Relations, uh, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Pete, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, Niagara District Catholic School Board has uh, cancelled a play, Boys, Girls, and Other Mythological Creatures, whose character is transgender. The play is uh, uh, was going uh, targeting students grades 1 through 4. The artistic director posted an open letter on the theater's website saying she did not receive a satisfactory reason for the cancellation. Uh, the uh, schools in question all develop scheduling conflicts. Uh, we have asked uh, somebody from the board uh, to come on for an interview. Uh, they have declined. Uh, however, uh, when spoke to Global News about this, uh, the board that oversees five of the schools that decided not to put the play on said it was, quote, fully inclusive, but that it was concerned the play sent a message that went beyond the targeted student comprehension. Uh, following the performance of the play, it was brought to our attention that the play was not age appropriate, said a Niagara Catholic District School Board uh, spokesperson. Again, we tried to get them on, but uh, they declined to come on. Uh, let's bring in Jessica Carmichael. She is the artistic director for Carousel Players and is with us now. Hello, Jessica. How are you today? Hi, I'm all right. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. First of all, tell us about artistic director, or sorry, uh, Carousel Players. Uh, well, Carousel Players is a professional theater company based in Niagara, St. Catharines. Uh, we've been around for 45 years making uh, challenging and entertaining children, it's a children's theater, um, professional theater for young audiences that um, takes um, our children's lives, current narratives into account. And we do that, um, and we remove barriers for um, children to see our plays, no matter their social or economic background. So not uncommon for you to perform these plays in schools? No, no, that's what we, that is our jam. Yeah. We love to go into the schools, that's what we do. Yeah. So uh, have you ever had this situation before? Um, well, certainly not in my artistic director time here with Carousel Players, but I believe probably not in the history of the company either. So tell us about this play. Okay. Um, well, this play is about, um, I guess the main message of the play is um, one of compassion and um, asking our friends and family to allow us to explore who we are, um, no matter what that is. Um, in this case, 
Simon, um, an eight-year-old, um, is feeling boxed in by their gender, and they're trying to explore what it means to express themselves past the binary of boy and girl, um, and being labeled um, only a boy who is only allowed to play with boy things. Um, and it's a fairy tale. It's a, a really sweet and funny story that Mark Crawford has written about um, a young person who's eight years old and um, is assigned um, to create a fairy tale from school and comes home with his homework and a new friend who's just moved to the city, little Abby, and they um, start creating um, a story in their basement where uh, a fairy godmother comes and uh, tells them that, you know, there's a, that Prince Simon um, has one very special thing they're meant to be, and that's their true self. And Simon and Abby start to try and discover what that is. Is it a mermaid? Is it an elf? Is it a unicorn? And um, the actors get to try out all these different things within Simon's basement. And what ends up happening is his older brother, Zach, who's 13, um, continues, keeps interrupting. He's babysitting, and he's very uncomfortable um, with Simon playing dress-up um, or anything like that, and then comes down and also tells Abby in confidence, my brother's been acting weird lately. Um, he says, that he, I think he wants to be a girl. And so Zach expresses a lot of discomfort and then ultimately enters into the fairy tale the two children are t creating and it starts to take over the basement and he becomes, um, as he says to the children, you want a bad guy? I'll be a bad guy and becomes a king who locks Prince Simon up in a tower of light where a dragon named Illuminaticus starts to preside over this tower and tell Simon, you um, have to stay here until you say you'll never want to be a girl again. You're not allowed to be a girl. You're not allowed to be friends with girls. Um, you don't like girl things. And so uh, the play is also really about Zach, who um, expresses discomfort um, and some sadness, disappointment, anger about his brother, Simon, um, you know, expressing himself differently. And then what ends up happening um, is that Simon finally transforms in the fairy tale into Princess Simone and says to Illuminaticus the dragon, I'm not afraid of you. Um, you know, you are supposed to be my brother, Zach, and you're supposed to love me and accept me for who I am. This is who I am right now. Um, this is, and at the end of the play, the brother, you know, realizes that he's oppressing his younger brother, and, but does ask, you know, are you my sister now? And the, the young character, Simon, says, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. And it's left open. So the statement that it's a, a play where we have a transgender child in the play is actually not true. It's, um, it's a young person who's questioning the binary, um, who has never been able to express themselves um, past that binary and that label, um, and his left questioning at the end of the play. And it's a story also about a really amazing girl who um, becomes empowered um, by doing things that are labeled boy things that she hasn't been really allowed to do and shows that, you know, girls can do anything too. So it's kind of a feminist piece, it's a, but it's also a piece that loves boys. Um, you know, it's just about loving each other and trying to work towards a more compassionate society. When were you made aware there was a problem here with the school board? Um, well, we uh, knew uh, prior to the only performance we've been able to have at the Catholic School Board. Um, we found out two weeks ahead that uh, the donor from the Knights of Columbus, um, who had given a free show, said that they were uncomfortable. Um, they had read the St. Catherine Standard, our preview article out, and said, um, the content uh, makes me wonder what it is about sexual orientation. And we, you know, we, we were able to talk to that person and say, well, it's not about sex. People confuse sex and gender all the time. That's not what this play is about. Um, mm -hmm. And then I was able to talk to the principal where the school, where the play was about to be performed um, ahead of time. And I said, you know, this is the play. You've received all the study guides four weeks in advance. You've um, seen the marketing. You booked the show. And he said, oh, no, I'm not concerned at all. I trust Carousel Players. And I said, well, I'll come in anyways, just because I want to make sure everyone feels comfortable. So I did that. Um, I went to the school on the day of performance, met the principal, met the donor. My production manager was there, in fact, and we um, went into the principal's office, and he showed me an email, pulled it up on his screen, and said, this is from the Ontario Ministry of Education, and it says right here um, that when planning instruction and considering class groupings, teachers should be aware and consider the needs of students who may not identify as male or female, who are transgender, or who are gender nonconforming, and that this is in the grade one to eight curriculum. It's for this age. And he said to me, we're covered. It's going to yeah. be great. And I said, okay. And he said, I'll run interference, but I'm feeling really good. And then that evening, we started to get cancellations. Hmm. So the play has only ever been performed once. 
it's only been four months for the Catholic school board. We right. have performed for 25 schools now, mm-hmm. one of which was a Catholic school board. The rest are the district school board of Niagara, the public school. So uh, word has just spread that the, 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 and, and the cancellations just started to happen? They did. So um, when that started to happen overnight, two after this performance, and then three the next day, um, you know, we went, uh, what's happening? And certainly all the emails, all that they said were school activities are now conflicting with these performances, some of which were booked a year in advance. Um, What a pile of crap. Like, why don't they just tell you what the problem is? Well, that's a really good question um, and one that we're still seeking. I was able to get on the phone with the principal from the school that we did perform at, Um, And that was an interesting conversation because I was told that uh, this, our message of our play, whatever that was, which still people haven't identified exactly what that message is, um, other than misinformation, that it's about a transgender child, which isn't the truth, and that we're trying to push an agenda where if you play dress up, you might be transgender. That's not the message of the play. Um, But they told us that it goes against the Catholic faith. And furthermore, I was told that, you know, you can't say those things. Those words don't jive anymore. That doesn't cut it. It, it doesn't cut it. And for me, um, you know, people You can't are, sell that anymore, can you today? That, can you sell that it's against the Catholic faith? Yeah, I mean, like, I it's a public know, school. It's, it, the problem is that this is a curriculum um, that is mandated and was updated in 2015 yeah. by elected officials of the Ontario government. We didn't make it up. Carousel Players isn't pushing the agenda and making up the curriculum. It's it's a public document that everybody can read online, and people should educate themselves, teachers and parents, and you can't pick and choose because it's publicly funded. Yep. And the Catholic School Board, if they want to pick and choose, then they have to think about whether they're going to take public funding anymore. So did so they've said that this whole thing because the, again we've got a, a, a note here from uh, Global News that the that the Catholic Board said that it was fully inclusive, but it was concerned that the play sent the message that went beyond the targeted students' comprehension, so that it was not age appropriate. Has anybody said anything to you about being it being age appropriate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have um, every feedback form that we've received um, from, because we hand them out at every school we go to, from um, the district school board of Niagara, from the public school, it's glowing reviews. People are saying, thank you. It's never too early to start talking about gender. It's in our curriculum. This actually should not just be for grade ones to four. It should be for grade ones to eight. Hmm. This is a beautiful play. I had two phone messages today, um, one of which a mom called me from Toronto, in fact, who's following the story and said, thank you. She said, my, my child is six years old. They're gender nonconforming. And I appreciate you for telling this necessary story, because for me, this is my life. And that's the thing is that these people, gender nonconforming children exist, and they matter. They have not been represented. And when we say, um, when we don't share the story, the message that starts to be shown is that they don't exist. They're being erased. Hmm. And that is not a story that I can get behind. And when it says it's not age-appropriate, again, I say refer to the curriculum. And not only that, but we had not, we had a member from the Niagara Catholic School Board of uh, the Niagara Catholic School Board sit on our outreach committee, uh, and also the public school board. They that is a board-appointed committee of carousel players. We meet four times a year, and for the last year and a half, they have been in um, conversations with us. They know the play, and they crafted the themes and curriculum messages that we send out with every marketing material that we send to the schools. So the public, uh, the the statement that John Crocco sent out saying that they didn't know. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, they have known for over a year, and they receive study guides that also have the themes and curriculum connections. Um, those study guides are crafted by Brock University students who um, know the curriculum, and they create very thoughtful pre- and post-show activities for the teachers to use. And in every single one of those descriptions, it says self-expression, gender, friendship, bullying, social studies. And we didn't come up, make those up. Those were um, carefully selected with members of both the Catholic School Board and the Public School Board who sit on our committee. Those people exist, and sadly, they haven't come forward um, to talk about that. Uh, So so the, the only real reason they have given you for this is the fact that there was a scheduling issue? They haven't even said to you that it wasn't age-appropriate, or did they say that? Uh, nobody in the emails that we received said it was um, age-appropriate. It, it was not age-appropriate. The emails that we have on file with the cancellation say 
school activities uh, are now conflicting with the performance. That is so funny. Canceling. Oh my and, goodness. That is so running away. That is so running away from the story. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, um, and the statement now saying that they actually deferred. No, they didn't defer. Nobody's deferred. The words used yeah. were canceled, and actually they're running schools sca- were invoiced. Yeah, they're running so scared. Money. They're running scared. Yeah. So did, what is age appropriate then if this is an age? Did, did anybody suggest that? Mind you, I guess they haven't even really suggested that to you. But No. Well, that would be, one, you know, tell us what what is age appropriate then. But, I mean, when we start putting the, that's the thing, right? You start asking, well, what are the red flags then that you want us to put out about what is age appropriate. I mean, this is mandated in the curriculum. And, you know, to talk about these, um, you know, non-binary, non-conforming ideas about gender, um, it's in the curriculum because we know that there are children, um, that these are people's lives and that they're in every school um, and that we we have to, um, as a society, um, make room and and, and have absolute compassion and acceptance for um, families who are raising children who are non-conforming. Um, and that that is uh, that is mandated now in our curriculum. And thank goodness, that's wonderful. Um, and I have to say that you know I have friends who um, are Catholic. I respect all sorts of religions. And you know the statement that was released by the Niagara Catholic School Board saying you know we are tolerant, we have acceptance. I think that's wonderful. I uh, you know so my question is then if that if that's true, and um, what a wonderful statement. Then why are you canceling the show? Well. Uh... The thing about religion is it's it's open to interpretation, and everybody interprets it differently. So there is no one rule. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't base law in religion, because it can be interpreted so many different ways by so many different people. And usually, as in this case, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah. Um, so what message do you think, What is the, what message does, does this send, canceling the play? For me, it sends a message of um, non-acceptance. It sends a message of, as I said before, that there's fear there. That that you know, and and it's it's not. It's a message that, in fact, I've I get I'm getting hate mail. Um, we had a public forum the other day because we want to hear all sides. But I've heard, you know, parents are talking about how gender fluidity doesn't exist. Um, you know, and so for me, that's that's sending a message of an intolerant society. And um, it that seems makes as me if, really sad. It seems as if the Catholic boards have a lot, an awful lot of work to do here. I would say yes. I mean, at this point, you know, in terms of um, being able to fully uphold the um, curriculum that has been mandated by our Ontario elected officials, um, that they um, they have to uphold this curriculum. So there is work to be done there, because right now you've got parents saying, "Oh, who are not uh, haven't obviously read the full document and are picking and choosing in the document um, that it only applies to grade threes." That's what people are saying in terms of you know on public forum with parents who have not seen the show saying, "Well, no, they're wrong. It's grade one and two shouldn't be seeing this." But actually, that's that's inaccurate. They need to read the document, um, and and. Yes, and so the Catholic School Board um, does need to do some more work there, um, because certainly our friends in the District School Board of Niagara are telling us a completely different story. They've called us. I've talked to that superintendent, who has told me we are fully behind you. Thank you. Hmm. And we're getting phone calls from principals from the District School Board who have said, what a message. The entire staff thought, courageous, beautiful story for our students, grade one to four. And those are feedback forms that, were, that are flowing in. And, the, and this play has been performed in how many different schools already? Uh, we have performed in 25 schools now. I mean, we should have had a sold a week this <laughs> this week, but we've lost cancellations. And of course, because we're dealing, um, and we're happy to talk about the issues around this play, but it's making it hard for our four-person staff to then actually sell the rest of the show. Um, uh, so we lost. We're we're losing performances. Does it? Do you, are you hesitant now to do stuff for the Catholic Board? Uh, I'm no, no. I'm not hesitant. I, you know, I, I. I like if they're going to back me, out of deals and leave you hanging. No, I, I think we still, I mean, for me, it's about the children. Yeah. I mean, I want the children to see this play. And, the, you know, even the school that we went to, because our stage manager has to write show reports. That's part of her um, responsibilities at every show. So she writes, you know, you know weather that day mm-hmm. um, and things like that. But she also writes about the children that she's observing and the questions that they ask. Because we, we craft a thoughtful Q&A with the kids, mm-hmm. and then they get to have to ask all sorts of questions. And, you know, even at that school, that we only one we went to, you've got kids who are just like, how'd you make the dragon? Or like, I love pink. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So, it, you know, the, the kids, um, it was unfortunate because they are, they're thoughtful, bright human beings who can teach us a lot 
you know, mm. and that's, and so we still want to have a relationship with the kids because that's who we're doing it for. Uh, what about your past record? It's not like this is your first rodeo. You guys have been doing this for a while. Does that not mean anything here? I wish that it would. I mean, I think that's the thing is when we first talked to the Catholic school board and this person in particular, he said, that's what's so surprising is that they said, we trust you. Absolutely. You know, we love this relationship that we've had. It's been 45 years. It's not exactly. We don't, um, we have, um, a national reputation for being um, a company that puts the children first. We work thoughtfully with educators in our community. Um, we reach out to parents. We take in the feedback. And that's also the thing is last year when we send around feedback forms to teachers um, in both schools um, and we ask them, what do you want to see next? Um, a lot of them wrote gender expression because it's new in the curriculum. And so the people are trying to figure out how to teach it in the schools. And they thought, well, what a great way to do that is mm. bringing a piece of theater in. And it was very serendipitous that I was working working with Mark Crawford um, on his beautiful play at that time. Um, and you were very open with the Catholic school board ahead of time saying this was oh, this is what it's about, this is oh, where absolutely. we're going, and, and everything was fine then. Everything has been fine. I mean, we they receive um, an early bird flyer, um, and, a, and in fact, I craft a principal letter that also gets sent out. So the early bird flyer gets sent out in June previous, so not this June, but June a year ago. Um, so, well, so a year ago, they're receiving early bird flyers about the show content, about the description, but also about the themes of curriculum connections. Again, that speaks to gender. And then we follow it up with a principal letter that I send out to everyone, the brochure. And then not only that, but like I said, our outreach committee has two members on that committee, from one from the Niagara Catholic School Board, who also it's her um, part of her job uh, in her portfolio is to work with us and then take the themes and curriculums. And she sends out messages as well and is um, an ally to us talking to the teachers and educators in her board. So they've known about it for a long time. And the study guides as well that they've all received, we have email traffic. Tracking that, um, they all receive study guides um, that talk to this play. So this all started when the donor who put up the money got wind of what the content was. Yeah, it all sort of began there. So money talks. Um, yeah, so that somebody who was in, you know, obviously um, in the Catholic School Board um, and a donor. Um, and influencing it with its money, I might add. And influencing, sorry, with his money. And influencing with money. Um, well, I don't, I'm not sure about like how, like uh, certainly he didn't, he never threatened us or anything to pull the money. He just had a lot of questions. Um, mm -hmm. and I mean, did say, I hope I'm not disappointed. Mm -hmm. And we went, well, I don't know what that means. So how about we <laughs> clarify, um, what you think the content is, you yeah. know, what misinformation or what you're worried about? What, what is it? And that's the big thing is that still we're, we're, we're at a loss. People are saying the message of the play is inappropriate. Well, tell us what that is. What's, what, what issue, what, what's, what is it that you want to speak to and say it? Because people are saying, I'm not transphobic. How dare you? I'm not this. I'm not that. But, and, and so within there, the but. Are you, surprised, are you surprised you're not getting more effort for a solution in this? As opposed um, to just all these vague comments? Well, I mean, there at this point, especially because of the Globe and Mail articles, um, I have finally been in conversation with the, uh, John Krakow, who is the one who sent out that news release with all of that misinformation in it. But we have talked on the phone. I did let him know um, about all the misinformation, and um, we are trying to schedule a, a meeting to sit down. Um, and chat about all of this, absolutely, you know, to um, clear the air. Um, so where do you think this is going to go, Jessica? Um, I, well, I, I can't say from their end. I, my hope is that, like I said before, that we can continue to um, have these plays that we really believe in, that we work with professional artists on, um, and with our, our school board um, on both sides, um, who are still going to be working with us unless the Catholic School Board decides not to appoint someone to sit on our committee, which would be a real tragedy. Um, we are hoping that we can still go into the schools. We have a lot of great plays um, that are in development coming up um, that, again, speak to um, the current narrative of the lives of the children that we're working in, um, that, we're, that we do these plays for. Jessica Carmichael has been with us, Artistic Director, Carousel Players. Niagara Catholic District School Board has cancelled a play whose character is transgender, uh, not really giving too much of an answer other than scheduling for the reason for this. Jessica, thanks for the time. Uh, good luck.
Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. North Korea claims now that the U.S. and South Korea are plotting to kill their leader, Kim Jong-un. Unbelievable. Uh, What does this mean if it did happen? And where is this coming from? And is there reason to believe this? Let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation, and he is with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, Is there a plot to Kim Jong-un? And if there is, would we all be talking about it? Well, I'm going to... My first instinct is that this is probably, you know, just another example of, you know, why North Korea is so much fun to study, deal with, and uh, bang your head up against. Because this is probably simply, you know, rhetoric coming out of Pyongyang meant to distract, meant to uh, reassure North Koreans that, in fact, the United States, you know, is an implacable enemy of the North Korean people, and and distract from you know recent you know failures by the North Korean government uh, to successfully test some new missiles and to uh, to convince the United States to back down in its recent rhetoric and uh, withdraw their carrier group uh, led by the USS Carl Vinson from the area. I doubt there is much to this story. Other than that, since the uh, United States, you know, well in the past has certainly engaged in that sort of, uh, you know, uh, off the book operations to assassinate foreign leaders, that hasn't been a significant part of their playbook in, in decades now. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said uh, his, his administration is not uh, seeking a regime change in North Korea, and he said last month on ABC he wasn't aware of any plans to assassinate Kim. Even that sounds odd, doesn't it? Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it, it, it's, I'm not aware that anybody is trying to assassinate him. I mean, there are probably people trying to assassinate Kim Jong-un. They're probably in North Korea, to tell you the truth. They're probably North Korean citizens. That's my Uh, next question, Simon. Does North Korea care if he was taken out? And that's where it gets very interesting. I mean, uh, to go back to Secretary Tillerson's uh, comments for a minute, in the United States not pursuing regime change in North Korea, I mean, that's a very wise uh, policy because the problem isn't necessarily Kim Jong-un. Like, just like the, the problem wasn't Kim Jong-il, his father. Um, when we talk about, you know, international politics, we talk about, uh, you know, uh, the you know, Korean Peninsula in particular, when we talk about American politics nowadays, we like to talk about leadership at the top. We talk about Donald Trump. We talk about Kim Jong-un. We're talking about Russia. We talk about Vladimir Putin. As if these men are all-knowing, omnipotent, and do actually do call all the shots. But the fact is, North Korea, despite being very different from a lot of countries, is in many ways very similar to a lot of other countries. And there, you know, there's not a large middle class in North Korea, but there is a middle class of, you know, a couple million people. And they rely very much on this system of government that they've worked their way up in, and they've, they've uh, climbed the ladder in um the closest thing that North Korea has to a, you know, a, a private sector or in the North Korean government, and they've become successful in there, just like any other country. There's, you know, a cadre of people who have a lot invested in the current, in the current regime, in the status quo. So, you know, North Korea, when we saw Kim Jong-un take power from his father after his father died, we saw a series of purges. We saw um, some longstanding military officials imprisoned or executed. Other uh, people were forced out of the foreign ministry, out of some other uh, non-military branches of government, because the the possibility that a coup would follow, that somebody else would knock Kim Jong-un off and take the reins was entirely possible. So Kim Jong-un, I mean, Korean leaders in the past have faced threats, mostly internally, if he were to, you know, die tomorrow in an assassination plot, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem that is North Korea. Hmm. Uh, so how tenuous is this situation? Is it a lot of saber-rattling, uh, or is, is, 
with both those these leaders, meaning uh, Un and Trump. I mean, you know, they, they they don't seem to be very predictable. How how much that's scary. How much tension does that add to the situation? You know, it's it's certainly the most tense that uh, things have been on the peninsula in a couple of years now. But we don't have to go back that far to find, uh, you know, far darker, scarier chapters in, you know, in the Korean-U.S. relationship. Uh, we can go back just a few years to um, the sinking of a South Korean uh, naval frigate by a suspected North Korean submarine. That raised tensions. It was followed by, you know, an exchange of uh, artillery fire between North and South Korea. We can go back to the... Um, in the mid-2000s, under, uh, when George W. Bush was president of the United States, and there was, looked like there was some serious consideration about using uh, military force to prevent North Korea from testing a nuclear weapon. This is before North Korea acquired a nuclear weapon. You go back to the Clinton years, there were some very tense moments, and the United States and North Korea nearly went to war. So in the big picture, in the history of it, this is a fairly minor you know, incident, um, this this current round of tensions. If anything sparked it, it may have been the assassination of, you know, Kim Jong-un's half-brother, and that might have simply been an excuse for some in the American administration who think that the, the North Korean government should be put on its toes a bit and reminded that, uh, reminded that um, the United States does have some long-standing issues they want to settle with them. But there's no real crisis here other than, you know, if you don't listen to the rhetoric, there's no crisis here. And North Korea hasn't been testing, isn't preparing to test a nuclear weapon, or they haven't tested one. They may, in fact, be preparing to test one. But there's no obvious problem that brought this on. It was simply a matter of rhetoric, a matter of political opportunity. Well, it just so, seems like a changing in personality, that, in that being with Trump, that this has changed. I mean, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un has constantly been poking the bear and, and, and you know, trying to create uh, probably more... Uh, situ- more tension inside his own country than outside, but obviously Trump won't sit back and doesn't want to sit back and let that rhetoric continue. Well, is he in, is Trump, he inflaming? Is he inflaming this, or is he is he helping, or is he hurting? I think probably right now he's inflaming it, but it's not it's not serious. I mean, Donald Trump, as I think we talked earlier this week, we haven't seen that much of him in action. It's only been you know a hundred days of him being president now, but he has a certain style. He doesn't like to be seen as weak. He doesn't like to be seen as, you know, in his words, losing. He likes to go out there, make some noise, um, and try to rack up some little wins and hold those little wins up as, you know, great accomplishments. That's sort of his, that's the way he does politics, to separate from policy. How he does policy, I'm not exactly sure yet. This is, in many ways, perhaps, you know, Trump entering office, you know, a long-standing problem in the U.S. foreign affairs file is North Korea, what to do about North Korea. They constantly trying to invade their neighbors, they're building their weapons, they're a totalitarian regime. Um, this is Trump perhaps, you know, on the one hand, trying to show Americans look on different than Barack Obama. Barack Obama would have been, you know, sat back, ignored North Korea, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to get in their face, I'm going to make threats, I'm going to shake them by the collar a bit and knock some sense into them. But right now, I mean, it doesn't look like he wants to do anything other than that. And within the United States Armed Forces and the United States uh, Foreign Service, there doesn't seem to be an appetite or a plan to do anything more than that right now. Where is China on all of this? And at any point, can they go in and control this? I mean, you know, it reminds me of a child that's getting out of hand and the older parent comes in or the older parent or sibling comes in and smacks them around and, 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 you know, gets them to sit down and behave. Is that the relationship here? Will China let them get out of hand or is it only in their best interest to, to, to keep them suppressed? And why haven't they done that? Well, I think that, that you know, that metaphor you used, it, it, it certainly characterized the, the Chinese North Korean relationship, you know, maybe 20 years ago. I think right. times have changed. I think the, the, the Chinese, during the Cold War, North Korea was useful to them. They're kind of an ally. They were a buffer. Now they've inherited this old alliance that's perhaps gotten harder and harder to manage. That you know, no one questions that you know, China's the one with the 
economic clout, the political clout, and the military clout. So why don't they just shut them down? Because they don't want, they need to, because they'll have to clean up the mess. It's really this simple. Right. And as you said earlier, removing a leader isn't going to solve the problem. Precisely. So the Chinese preference is, you know, we've inherited this, inherited this alliance from previous generations. We can't jettison it. We, it's going to be very hard for us to reassure, you know, Pakistan, for example, or China relies very much on Pakistan to extend its influence into Western Asia. They can't be seen as completely tossing an ally overboard, even if it's unruly difficult to work with one. They prefer back-channel messaging. China can exert a tremendous amount of pressure on North Korea very quietly, though. They can hold up trains that are bringing food and goods into uh, North Korea very easily and very quickly and send a very uh, you know, sharp and painful message, but do it quietly rather than causing a major diplomatic incident. Uh, so, are these sanctions working? Well, we, we've seen lots of evidence that they are. You know, it's it's difficult for North Korea to import, you know, certain goods. I mean, here's the thing. North Korea doesn't make cars, for example. They might make tanks, but they don't make cars. They want to import, they want buses, cars, train uh, locomotives, big capital goods like that. They have to import them. And there's some evidence that, you know, some of those sources are drying up. There is also evidence that, you know, there are chronic shortages of certain goods in North Korea. On the other hand, the Koreans have faced sanctions for, you know, decades now. They are good at finding their way, you know, around them. They still find ways to, you know, smuggle in goods, smuggle in U.S. dollars, smuggle weapons out to certain countries, and in exchange get, you know, oil or whatever critical resource they're short of now. The sanctions do seem to work, and when the Chinese, you know, bring the bring the hammer down at the border and really, you know, you know, critically inspect every train car, every truck going into North Korea, they don't tend to they'll do that for maybe a couple weeks at a time. Then the screws really get turned on North Korea, and that's where you tend to see some modification of behavior. So they work, but they're not perfect, and they're. There is no such thing as a perfect sanction. So why does Kim Jong-un create all the fuss? If China is his ally, why not just have a great relationship, lead a good life? Like, Because it almost seems as if they're against China as much as they are the West. Why don't yeah, they just take advantage of their relationship with China? I mean, that's ultimately, I mean, that's the, the, the difficult position that the North Korean government is in and the, the Kim clan in particular are in. You know, to go back to our conversation earlier, the Kims are probably replaceable. I mean, there would be challenges, and there's this great cult around the, the Kim family about how they are the, the founders of North Korea and the guardians of the, the Korean people, sort of a, a father figure that protects them from the outside world. They've done a very good job at cultivating that that image but when push comes to shove they are probably replaceable there could be an alternative government in north korea you know maybe maybe things kept along essentially the same line still a single party dictatorship but with a different host of dictators up at the top who are a bit you know friendlier to china a bit more supplicant to china and the they never the kims never want to be trapped by China because then they can be, you know, that proverbial cost overboard, throwing out. They're no longer useful. It's a situation where, you know, China protects It's almost like they're no longer, it almost seems, Simon, though, that they're no longer useful now. Like, you know, at what point does this regime just run its course? I mean, there's nowhere else for it to go, really, is there? And that's the suspicion, right? That's that's where you get into some very interesting conversations with uh, with people who deal with the, the Chinese government behind closed doors on a face-to-face basis, that compared to 10 years ago, yeah, the, it seems like Chinese patience is wearing thin. Mm. But wearing thin isn't the same as you know getting to the point where it's going to snap. And that's where nobody's really, you know, on the side of the, the Pacific at least, nobody's really sure. You know, what's the breaking point? What what's the final straw that? where the, the Chinese government says enough is enough and it's time to, you know, change the government there. Even if we have to clean up the mess, pick up the pieces, 
it's better than continuing this charade with this uh, this this strong man who you know rattles his you know rattles his saber at everybody in the neighborhood. And We're how not long sure where that breaking point is? And how long can he keep pulling the wool the wool over the eyes of North Koreans? I mean, no matter how much control he has, it's still a, a global village now. How, how how can he keep a lid on this? You know, I suspect longer. He can probably keep a lid on longer than we think he can, because for years now, that's been that's been the the, the theory that the advent of the internet, uh, the the proliferation of satellite TV, cell phone, that you know North Korea can't keep this up. I mean, if the Soviet Union couldn't keep it up in the 1980s, how could you know a smaller, weaker country exactly up today? But the, the challenge is, every time it looks like, well, this is it. This is the end, you know. The, uh, the South Korean intelligence services have found ways to get, you know, uh, alternative media into the country. Uh, South Korean soaps, South Korean news, etc. Uh, they've got a channel to the North Korean people. This will pull the wool off from their eyes and it'll all be over. It doesn't happen. So it, it's one of those situations where it seems inevitable, and perhaps it is. But the timeline, it's it, it seemed inevitable for the last 10 or 15 years, mm. and it hasn't happened yet. Good point. Uh, what about Trump's relationship uh, with Kim Jong-un? Uh, th- there's chats of meetings, this, that, the other. I mean, will any of this ever happen? And there's times that we've talked about this before about uh, Trump showing sympathy uh, for the leader. Where does that leave things? Will they get together, do you think? I doubt they will get together on a face-to-face bilateral basis. That would be... That would be, if the president wanted to do that, President Trump wanted to do that, he would face tremendous opposition inside the White House, inside the Department of State, inside the Pentagon. Of course, he is the commander-in-chief. He can't override that, but you'd see a united front, and they're quietly trying to persuade him to do otherwise. Directly meeting with Kim Jong-un, I mean, that would also endanger American relations with relationship with China, with its ally Japan, with its ally South Korea. It would raise a lot of flags about American reliability and, and, and why they're giving this uh, this nasty dictatorship the time of day. Why are they stooping to their level, negotiating with them, where it's an, obviously the, the North Korean government is far weaker than the United States. The U.S. should be calling the shots and, and pushing them around. A meeting, you know, with other leaders, with the uh, you know the president of China, prime minister of Japan. Japan President of South Korea, that's a possibility. But a bilateral meeting between the two men, I think it would be, uh, even if even if Trump and a couple of his advisors think it might be a good idea and it might shake things up and and, uh, and create some new momentum, I, I find I'm very skeptical that it would happen. Simon Palomar has been with his research assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. Uh, North Korea claims that the U.S. and the South have a plot to kill leader Kim Jong-un. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Uh, the soap opera continues. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.